welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. I recently had a chance to speak with Gary Hurstein, who's a Whitehead scholar and author of The Quantum of Explanation, Whitehead's Radical Empiricism, uh, which I'd highly recommend if Whitehead's your thing and you know maybe want to get a, a different perspective than you might get from the kind of process theology that's become more popular in recent years, which is something we talk a bit about as well. It was also great to have Matt Siegel join us, who many of you I I think will know, and I think it made for a really rich conversation, so thanks Matt for, for joining in. Thanks to Gary, of course. For anyone who's interested, I'll link to Matt and Gary's stuff in the show notes, books and blogs and bears. Oh my. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, if you're able to hang out until the end, I have a couple of updates I'll share, and that's it. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. Here's Gary Hurstein. Peace. Hey. Hey, Matthew. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. What's new? It's just mid-semester and, um, you know, I teach online and I try to be very uh, accessible and available to students. And so I've had just back-to-back-to-back meetings. Yeah. uh, Talking about Whitehead um, because that's Uh, what I'm teaching. Let's keep this ball rolling. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm all warmed (laughs) up, I guess. Um, Gary's in the waiting room before I let him in. Is there anything that you want to discuss? You want to do a little like pre-gaming? Oh, that's How not did... fair. Poor Gary. He's, gonna, he's already worried about getting double teamed, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I don't think he and I have ever actually met. So well, let's just keep it loose then. We'll keep it kind yeah. of, um, yeah. All right. So I'll let him in. Okay. Did I let him in or did I boot him? What's going on here? Whoops. I know. Oh no, he's here. Gary, where are you? Uh, he's joining. Oh, there's Gary. There he is. Hey, Gary, can you hear hey. us yet? Yeah, yeah. It, I it tried to open in the app, and the app just closed down. So I'm opening this in the browser. Okay. Okay. You got a fan running in the background or something? I do. If it's not going to make you uncomfortable. Gary, thanks for agreeing to speak with Matt and I. You guys, I think, know of each other but haven't met. Is that right? We may have crossed paths at like Claremont, the meeting, one of the lead-up meetings to the uh, 15 International. Yeah, that would make sense. I think that's true, but uh, I don't think we've ever had a proper conversation. So yeah. glad to. I don't glad know, you yeah, I don't know if we ever actually sat down at the International. Too many tracks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's no real agenda here for today. I guess I should say I've known you through a reading group that we've been involved in for a couple of years now, um, although I don't show up as often as I as I should. And I've got to know you a little bit through there. And it's an interesting experience when you are reading something by someone else and you're like, the person you just met is being cited. And I'm like, oh, I know, I know that guy. I know that guy. So I was like, oh, he wrote a book. He's a whitehead guy. Oh, no kidding. And then this gave me an opportunity to actually bite the bullet and pay 50 bucks <laughs> for a Rutledge gem. I've been really enjoying the book and getting a lot out of it. So I want to talk about that a little bit. 
Um, but I'd love to have people get a better sense for who you are, maybe a little bit about your intellectual or even spiritual journey, whatever you want to share with us. Well, okay. Uh, I, uh, let's see. Well, I actually started out in computers and technology. Uh, I went into the army in 75 that got my electronics training there. I came out of the army expecting to get a master's degree in, in computer science and started out at university of Southern California with that track in mind. And with having a, a three-year delay there, I was closer in age to the graduate students who were teaching the English and various types of introductory courses I had to take than I was to the other undergraduates. And so I became friends with them. I noticed that while the guys in computer science were really nice, they could only talk about one thing. Whereas the guys, the graduate students, they were talking about stuff all over the board. The first summer out, I get a job working at JPL at the Space Flight Operations Facility during the Voyager 1 and 2 encounters at Jupiter and uh, Saturn. And so I had this high paying job on just and only the uh, tech training I got in the Army. And the whole story about go to college and get a better job just fell apart for me. So I decided I'd go to college and get an education instead. And I switched my major to uh, philosophy. Later on, for a variety of personal reasons, I switched uh, school from uh, USC to Occidental College. And by the way, I am after that switch, I am a huge advocate of the small liberal arts college. I mean, I can't can't sing the praises highly enough because I mean, for one, just one thing, just one example that I always use, I'd go to the library at USC and the library at USC claims to have like a million volumes or it did at the time, but you can never find anything because it's all checked out by the grad students. <laughs> you had 11,000 undergrads, but you had 14,000 graduate students. I go to Occidental College, which via library scare quote only has 300,000 volumes, but it also only has 1600 students. I can walk into the library and not only find things I was looking for, but find things I didn't know I was looking for. I mean, it sounds like it'd be uh, worse than Target. You got to be careful walking in those doors. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I got to know my professors, got to know the other students, that sort of stuff. So, I mean, liberal arts college is the only way to go as far as I'm concerned now. If if you want an education as opposed to, uh, as opposed to vocational training. So, I got an undergraduate degree in philosophy, but I still continue to work in computers and such. And I... I moved around on that a little bit, and I was doing my own studies and such. I finally decided, realized there were questions that I could not answer on my own, specifically technical ones about abstract algebra in particular. And so I decided I need to go back to school and get, get a master's degree. Well, I didn't want to get a master's degree in mathematics because, first of all, you have to have an undergraduate degree in mathematics to get a master's degree in mathematics. And the undergraduate degree, so you have to first spend three years just and only doing calculus, learning calculus. Nobody likes calculus, but still they require that you have basically three years of calculus before you can do anything interesting. So I ended up in Chicago because I had friends in Chicago, uh, went to DePaul because they did an interdisciplinary degree. And the math department there was happy to see me and, allow, and let me take graduate courses in abstract algebra. So I finished that, uh, lived in Chicago for a number of years, um, and finally, uh, I, I was doing this stuff, working at the time for Bank of Montreal. And I finally got to the point where, you know what, the job, it, I just don't want to die like this. So I decided, <laughs> and so I decided in... Uh, Sorry, I didn't laugh. No, no, don't laugh. It's, I mean, it, it's only funny after the fact. I laugh now too, but at the time it's like sepaku. I mean, just spill my viscera and bow three times to the emperor and die. Um, 
in 2000, I moved to uh, Carbondale, Illinois to get my PhD at uh, Southern Illinois University. My original intention was to do a PhD on Dewey's philosophy of mathematics that appears as chapter 20 in The Greater Logic, but along the way I also met Randy Oksher. At a presentation in Indiana, he managed to mention my three favorite philosophers in a single sentence, Dewey, Cassera, and Whitehead, at which point I decided I needed to meet this guy, and it turned out he was showing up at, at SIU at the same time I was. And we became friends, and then he became my uh, my dissertation director and finally became my, my author. And Along the way, I changed my interest from Dewey to Whitehead. And uh, so uh, my dissertation, Whitehead and the Measurement Problem of Cosmology, I defended in 2005. It came out as a book in 2006. Uh, I toured around a little bit doing the uh, academic tinker thing, hitting various different one-year uh, uh, positions. And then my father's uh, dementia hit a point where he could no longer take care of himself. So I had to move back to Prescott, Arizona for two years he moved into assisted living, take care of the finances there. And by the time that all that was done, I'd been off the market for two years and there was no hope of ever getting a job. So I moved back to Southern Illinois because I had friends here and I was able to land someplace livable for many, for many years. And then because uh, I was now back in proximity, he and I were finally able to get sit down and work on the book, The Quantum of Explanation, which came out in uh, 2017. The wheel has finally turned again, and we're back to working on the uh, next book, okay. which we, we mentioned it uh, toward the later pages of Quantum. And so it's not a secret. The uh, the provisional title for the book we are now working on is The Continuum of Possibility. Nice. But this, this has just started. So if you ask me what it's all about, I'd say, well, it has something to do with continuum and, poss and possibility. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, like I said, I've really enjoyed what I've read from the Quantum of Explanation book. I'm not all the way through it yet. It's changed the way that I think about Whitehead and, and will approach Whitehead the next time I pick up any of his stuff. Matt, do you have anything? Yeah, it's just great to hear a bit of Gary's journey. Um, I have also very much enjoyed Quantum of Explanation, which Randy was kind enough to send me while I was working on my dissertation uh, the full version before Rutledge uh, took a, a knife to it. Um, it was important for me trying to work through, you know, this concept of extension, that famous or infamous part four of process and reality, because I did try to, I don't know if I quite tackled it, but uh, I tried to at least uh, catch up to it a bit in uh, my dissertation. Your book was essential for just, uh, yeah, giving me, a maybe undomesticated look at Whitehead, if domesticated would be the Claremont School version. <laughs> right. Uh, this was uh, an outs outsider's say to that dominant school of thought in Whitehead studies, giving me a different look, which I really appreciated. Well, the Claremont School is prim my understanding. Let me let me qualify myself here. My understanding is that the Claremont School approach is primarily dominant within the United States. I am told by people who are in a position to know that when you get out of the U.S., their approach takes on a much uh, smaller uh, percentage of people's attention to Whitehead. Hmm. I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I cannot confirm this through direct experience, but I'm like I, I'm inclined to trust the people who told me this. Recently, too, in my view of things, maybe in the last 15 years or so, but accelerating more recently. There have been so many scholars, philosophers, but but others too from different disciplines drawing on Whitehead that have nothing to do with process theology. 
probably never read a word of Hartshorn or, or Cobb or Griffin, and they're drawing on Whitehead in really creative ways. And so I, I have never had the sense that um, there's any sort of uh, stranglehold, let's say, on Whitehead in America, even though for sure the Center for Process Studies and, and Claremont Graduate School, uh, Theology School, has had um, a major impact on Protestant theologians who have come to Whitehead's work. But I think well, there's others too. This is relatively new, especially in the last 10 years. I mean, you go back at the start of the 2000s, Claremont was pretty overwhelming in their position. And they maintained that position coming through the Lewis Ford years, who in his day was quite uh, quite overwhelming in terms of interpretation, which as we argue in the book, and as I argue in some other publications afterwards, based on the uh, Harvard lectures, Lewis, the Fordian interpretation about uh, temporal atomism and the fundamental change in Whitehead's approach between, uh, I call it the triptych, the three books on natural philosophy, uh, the inquiry into principles of natural knowledge, concept of nature, and the principle of relativity with application. This is from 1919 to 1922, and I call it the triptych. Is an idea and a term I'm trying to insert into the uh, into the scholarship uh, with limited success, but I'm going to keep insisting until I'm, uh, this is a hill I'm going to die on. <laughs> but um, Ford's thesis with there's a fundamental break in Whitehead's thought between the triptych and the later metaphysical thoughts, which I would argue cannot be uh, justified by any moderately careful reading of the text. And just for my own background, what characterizes that break according to Ford? That he rejected his earlier interpretation of time from the triptych, that he embraced an idea that Ford called uh, temporal atomism. And here, Ford is using atomism in a way that I do not and we do not in the uh, quantum of explanation. He's talking about atoms as little beads on a string. Like Democritus style? Yeah, the idea that there's a fundamental break you know, in the later works from the earlier works. Going back to process and reality, I actually enumerated all of them. I, there are at easily eight, six, eight places where Whitehead refers back to those books. And in over half of those references, he simply tells the reader to read the entire book. You just don't do that if you're rejecting those th that thesis. Oh, does he cite his entire book? <laughs> the entire book. Let's go back to that's, such a, that's such a weird flex. <laughs> just, like, you know, for, for more information, read Concept of Nature. You know, for more information, you know, you know, a couple times he says, read this chapter from that book. Mm -hmm. There are two things he qualifies from his, those earlier books, neither of which Ford really highlights. The first is that after 1922, I think in 23, 24, a uh, philosopher, Theodora de Laguna, published some, two essays critical of his Mariology. And now, Whitehead is credited with reintroducing Mariology into Western thought and argument in those books. Mariology is the study of part and whole. It differs from set theory, and that set theory, you start with elements that are just collected together. In Mariology, there ain't no elements. I mean, there can be, but there, but there would have to be. So you're looking at things as parts and holes and not as elements and memberships. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a Polish logician in 1916, prior to White, who published on Mariology as well, Lesniewski, uh, a name I constantly misspell because it is Polish. But 
1916, none of the really great work that was happening in Poland was known in the Anglophone world. Uh, that didn't happen until Alfred Tarski came over the water and began translating stuff. So Whitehead had, was operating in complete ignorance of what Lesniewski was doing in Poland. So Whitehead is co, kind of the co-reinventor of, of Mariology. There's some talk that Aristotle also started on it, but hmm. kind of lost. That's interesting. I, I hadn't heard of that term before, uh, but I certainly can see that sort of thing in Whitehead's thought. I think what you're talking about now and some of the things that you write about have helped me understand is that the one and the many for Whitehead are completely provisional in the sense that they form parameters, as I understand it, for his inquiry. Is that, is that right? That's, that's a pretty reasonable way of putting it. I mean, they are co-creative. Theodore de Laguna's uh, crit criticism of Mariology was that there was a logically better way of approaching it. And that's what White had actually adopted in uh, Process and Reality, what came to be known as Mirio topology. He imports topological concepts and merges them with his Mirio-logical concepts. And it's and that is genuinely unique. And it, it makes its appearance in Process and Reality. That's in part four. Um, topology is about Gosh, how to put that simply. It's about geometry without straight lines, without uh, distances. It's geometry understood purely in terms of neighborhoods where you have no metric applied to the neighborhood. Thus, it is said, for example, that a, that a topologist is someone who can't tell the difference between a donut and a teacup. Because the only break in the donut is, is at the teacup handle. So you can continuously deform that teacup back into that handle and you got your donut. And so topologically, the two are indistinguishable. And so he imported some of those ideas. And back in 1929, they were still comparatively recent. But in his part and whole is where he says, your part and your whole are kind of co-eval. And that's why they're not so much about internal relations. The term we used was the internalization of relatedness. Because part and whole can only be understood together. In a more theological register, that sounds very panentheistic or has a certain panentheist resonance to it. I have more questions I want to ask you about process theology and the Claremont School and that kind of stuff. But since we can't seem to get away from it, we might as well deal with it now. Um, my way into Whitehead was through the Claremont School and uh, something that you and I have uh, talked about and that you've noted that a lot of folks are instructed specifically to skip chapter four of process and reality. And why is that a bad idea? And, and what, do, um, what do what do people miss when they do that? Well, they miss an essential element of, white, of Whitehead's thinking. They miss all of the internal relations. You miss the reality of coordinate analysis. Without prior to coordinate analysis, you don't have an actual occasion. Can you say more about that? I, I think there's going to be um, a lot of people who won't really follow that. Well, this goes back to, well, really back to the title of the book. It's called The Quantum of Explanation, not the quantum of strange little stuff floating around. One of the things that Randy and I were struggling with was, for example, many uh, thinkers in the early Duques up to the 210s, well, actually earlier than the Duques, but a lot of thinkers variously attempted to wrongly use quantum mechanics, quantum physics, to interpret process and reality. I mean, you can use process and reality to interpret quantum uh, mechanics, quantum physics. Uh, Epperson and Zephyrus do a fine job of that in their book on relational realism. But 
especially when you read his notes, what he knew about quantum physics at the time was significantly less than what people knew afterwards and what they and it's the after part. So people knew afterwards that they're trying to push down on top of process and reality. But more importantly, this is actually in part four also, although he hints at it throughout the book, it's on like page 285 or something of the corrected edition. He literally tells you that's, that neither space nor time are available to you in the uh, coordinate, in the making of the actual occasion, in the coordinate and the imprehension and extension. Space and time come, and here I have to scare quote it, after the metaphysical issues that he's dealing with. Now, after, what does that mean? It doesn't mean in a spatial sense because you don't have space set yet. It doesn't mean in a temporal sense because you don't have time yet. So what can it mean? And our answer in quantum of explanation is that it, space and time come after in a logical sense, which is why it is a quantum of explanation, not of stuff. And so, and this is where it starts making sense. I mean, space and time arise. I keep wanting to slip into the term and say emergent, but emergent is too heavily loaded. My, my drink, my ice, my drink is hot. <laughs> I just blew my drink's mind. Um, but space and time are natural phenomena, and they belong in natural philosophy. Uh, and so the metaphysics is prior, but it can't be prior in space, and it can't be prior in time, so it has to be logically prior. And we try to develop the sense of that. And so the, the reason that coordinate analysis is so important is you don't have an actual occasion. The example early on, if you might recall, we, get, uh, we give an example early in, in the early pages about Fenway Park. We didn't do this just out of some wild, hysterical love of baseball. We did it because we wanted to say, if you wanted to take Fenway Park and make a model of it, what do you have to do? What is your quantum of explanation? What is your minimal unit? What is your actual occasion that, uh, that allows the everything else to become clear? Uh, if you have a little paperweight, about the only thing you need to make that paperweight, obviously, Fenway Park, is the green monster. Everyone sees the green monster and says, oh, that's Fenway Park. Doesn't, the rest of it doesn't have to look anything at all like Fenway Park. As long as you see the green monster, that, that huge green mall, wall in the outfield. But um, that huge green wall, which is called the green monster, because it blocks so many, um, so many hits that would otherwise have been home runs. Well, what if you want to build a Fenway Park that's good for Little League? Little League players are not just simply miniaturized major league ball players. All, there's all kinds of physical issues that are different. I mean, this is why, for example, the pitcher's mound is closer to the uh, to the home plate in Little League than it is in Major League. And because the pitchers tend to be taller, it's not raised up. The pitcher's mound is basically flat, just a flat strip. You have to take account of the fact that the reaction speeds of Little League hitters aren't, aren't as fast. You can't just shrink everything down. You have to shrink things down in a way that is not proportionate Take, shrink it down in a way that takes account of the physical abilities and the actual growth of the pl young players who are going to be playing there. You know, so we kind of work through this careful analysis. Like I say, it's in the fairly early parts of the book, and it's not there gratuitously, because what is that minimal unit, that explanatory unit? Uh, and for a term, we just threw out the term fenator, Fenway Park, a fenator as a unit. And you have this unit of explanation that takes into account all of these different issues that are way more complicated than a mere shrinking of physical size. And that account 
is your coordinate analysis. And th this gets to one of the major points that you, you insist on, right? It's not that abstractions describe the uh, concrete, but that the concrete describes concrete the abstract. Explain. The abstractions might can describe the concrete, but it's the concrete that explains the abstractions. Right. If the abstractions don't describe something concrete in some usable way, then they, then you've got a garden path here that's leading nowhere. And, and so that that kind of speaks to, I suppose, on one hand, Whitehead's the the realism in Whitehead, and I think it also speaks to what he means when he talks about the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Concrete. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Because well, it's it's something that I've heard quite a bit. And I think the the precise explanation that you were just giving helps make that come alive a little bit more. Well, the, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness is treating something that is abstract as though it were concrete. So here's an example. Treating an electron as though it were concrete, when in fact an electron, a single electron, is an abstraction. What is closer to concrete is the entire electromagnetic field all at once. This takes us back to an argument he presents in the concept of nature. He suggests there, and I continue to like it, a, di a distinction between what he calls fact, factor, and object. Fact is the most concrete. Fact is not this thing or that thing, however. Fact in natural philosophy is all of nature all at once. Factor, you've begun to distill out certain relational characteristics of nature. And object is when you have something that, for purposes of inquiry, is hard and fast and solid enough and permanent enough that you can talk about it. So my cell phone. And yes, that, that's a flip phone. I'm that old. They're coming back. Yeah, I, I, I'm an old guy. I got no use for a smartphone. And I have even less use for the, uh, for the fees associated. But... Yeah, this is an object, but treating it as a self-identical thing is an abstraction. And treating it as that abstraction as though it were absolutely concrete within the universe, that is a fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Yeah, I appreciate in Quantum of Explanation the uh, full frontal assault on model centrism in, in science, which is a, a great example of misplaced Concrete. concreteness which has, I think, uh, really significant effects on culture at large, um, the way that some scientific abstractions uh, become mistaken for the concrete for reality. The itself, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, a weed up my bum for a, long, for a while, the, the model centrism issue. I mean, it shows up, for example, in the earlier book, Why Didn't the Measurement Problem of Cosmology? Uh, it just got more uh, acute for me from there on. Yeah. There's been a lot of um, different books written in the last several years about the encounter between um, Bergson and, and Einstein, 1922. It's called a debate sometimes, but they barely said anything to each other. Uh, but they were disagreeing about time and the extent to which, you know, special and or general relativity were the end of the story on the nature of time. And, uh, you know, Bergson was actually quite interested in relativity theory, but tried to say to Einstein, hey, there's there's a real time, which is the time of, of our experience right. that we can't step outside of and measure. And then there's 
clock time, measurable time that we can use to coordinate and measure and, and do physics. Um, and Einstein said, there is no such thing as this philosopher's time. Uh, it's just a figment of your imagination. And I think that moment, you could call it a bifurcation if you want, because Bergson was so popular up until right. that point. And then Einstein's, I mean, he was already famous for a few years at that point. The principal one that wrote the book about that I think you're talking about. Himenea Canalis, I think. Himenea, yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Lovely book, lovely book. Um, this view of a kind of physicalism, too, as the new theology took off and the role of intuition and, and philosophy as having anything important to say beyond what the physicists could tell us was dismissed, right? Do you see that as a kind of important moment oh, as yeah. well? Or? An inflection point, yeah. And Gosh, I, I own the book, I've read it, and I'm forgetting the author's name, uh, the principal one that wrote the book about that I think you're talking Himenea about. Himenea Canalis, I think. Himenea, yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Lovely book, lovely book. Um, and yeah, it's kind of an inflection point, and arguably even an inflection point for Whitehead, although it's hard to track the specifics. But by 1919, when he first writes uh, Inquiry in the Principles of Natural Knowledge, he's already moved completely away from Whitehead's notion of time, because, because 1916 is, is general relativity. Right. And 19, 1918 is when Edding, Eddington comes back with his declaration of unambiguous success from the 1919. It was after the war, but the eclipse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think I think it was 1918 that he, 1918, 1919, when Eddington comes back. And one of the things that was mentioned afterwards is, I think Eddington took something like 13 photographic plates, and they had to discard over half of them, and the other half were ambiguous. But still, Eddington yeah. declared it an unqualified success. Mm. This was not well known at the time, and I have no reason to believe that Whitehead knew about it. But he was just completely unsatisfied with the approach to time, space, and he was certainly, by 1919, uh, not a fan of Einstein's approach. He had to, have to spend a fair amount of time uh, thinking about this stuff in order to uh, have that criticism worked out by 1919 and, and, and Principle of Natural Knowledge. Um, by the time of Process of Reality, certainly it's obvious he's been reading Bergson. But it seems likely that he was reading Bergson before then. At this point, it's just a hypothesis. I'd have to go back and, and check my books to see at what point he refers. He might refer to Bergson and in, in, uh, into uh, Science in the Modern World. It wouldn't surprise me. I just not. Bergson certainly knew of and read uh, the concept of nature and praises it as one of the most, I think he says, the most important book on natural philosophy ever written as how I think it, but he says that in his book um, duration and simultaneity which he eventually withdrew from publication so Whitehead at least knew of him by then but I'm pretty sure he was reading him earlier yeah I mean Whitehead is clearly explicitly moving away from punctiform uh, a point like is moving away from any kind of punctiform uh, analysis of either space or time and this goes back to the 1890s and his work on the universal algebra where he's drawing so heavily on Hermann Grassmann's work on extension. Just working on extension, you're going to see a resistance to dealing with points as anything other than high abstractions. You're dealing with extensa, I mean, extensional segments in plural extensa, which is, of course, why by the time it comes around, he invents, quote-unquote, invents uh, muriology almost out of whole cloth at that point. So can you help me understand something, Gary? Like Einstein will talk about events as like sort of the fundamental units in relativistic space-time, but is he still thinking of point instants? 
instantaneous. Which is calling it events. An event for Einstein is a point in four-dimensional space-time. At various points in his writings, Einstein um, tries to deny the spatial interpretation of time. That is, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't believe him. <laughs> I mean, you can't defend uh, the four-dimensional space-time of general relativity and claim that you don't believe that you're not spatializing time. Of course, he is. It's just another dimension of space, and that's what Bergson was arguing against. He's telling Einstein, "You can't do that. You're spatializing time." And that's what arguably Randy and I see in White as well, as he's moving away, he's trying to avoid spatializing time uh, in a different approach than that which uh, that, that Bergson taught. But White talks in Concept of Nature and the other three books about durations, a whole, but a dur every duration is part of another duration and has other durations as part of it. But there is no bottom. There is no instantaneous point. There is no moment. That's a pure abstraction. Right. And there is no whole either. So of all of time, all at once. That's your Parmenidean block, which is also basically a part of the Einsteinian approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that all tracks. I, I wonder if what's going on in coordinate division in process and reality is, is why did trying to explain how measurement is possible. Um, and what Einstein seems to be doing is thinking of physical reality in terms of something purely measurable and leaving out what Whitehead would call the genetic analysis, leaving out concrescence, leaving out what for Bergson he called duration. Whitehead and Bergson differ about how to account for that. Whitehead does have uh, this epical theory of time, whereas Bergson has his um, continuous multiplicity. Is that the phrase he uses? Um, so they differ a little bit, but it seems that what Whitehead's describing in concrescence with his theory of prehension is what Einstein didn't think was part of reality at all, that everything could be reduced to the measurable extended well, aspects. Well, the theory of measurement is also what comes out of part four. Right. Well, you're right. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, what Einstein takes measurement for granted. He just assumes it is possible. And this is what in my earlier book, why I called it the measurement problem of cosmology. This was Whitehead's critique of Einstein's general relativity in, in the triptych, was that there is no theory of measurement here. The only way you can have a meaningful set of measurements is you have to know all physical relationships first. But you can't know the physical relationships until you have a viable theory of measurement. So as Whitehead criticizes Einstein, you have to first know everything before you can know anything. And Einstein just ignores and tramples over these issues and just takes it for granted that uh, even though you have to know every last physical interaction of a point of space in order to know the geometry of that space, he just takes it for granted that you can measure that space. Well, just it seems to me that there's a certain kind of instrumentalism in, in contemporary physics um, where in quantum physics, they say shut up and calculate, but even despite all these paradoxes in relativity theory, it works well enough for the GPS satellites, right? And so it's like, if it works in that sense, and it's almost like science has been replaced by techno-science in a right. way, um, that these deeper ontological and metaphysical questions are pushed to the side and ignored because the focus is just on the, the, the payoff, the technical payoff. Well, the payoff is getting more and more expensive in gravitational cosmology. And mm -hmm. I differ between gravitational cosmology, philosophical cosmology, and theological cosmology. 
and I, I would argue that White is do, actually doing philosophical cosmology, but he's doing it in such a way that it ties into physical cosmology or gravitational cosmology. People who do gravitational cosmology are absolutely wedded to general relativity now, and they and they can't get a divorce. As a consequence, uh, we're told that 95% of everything is dark matter and, and dark energy, which are conveniently absolutely undetectable. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of scientific apophaticism. That's and that is model centrism. Mm, yeah. uh, physicist, not related to the theme park in any way that I know of, but the physicist Michael Disney, I cite him in in Quantum, has estimated that there are more free parameters in the theory now, uh, the the standard model of gravitational cosmology, than there are independent observations. Which means that no matter what is observed, we will make the model work. Yeah. Tim Eastman calls this post-diction. They don't, the model doesn't predict anything, but they can post-dict it to fit whatever they observe. Whatever they observe, yeah. And, the, uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's a problem from a scientific perspective. And they keep compounding these three parameters so as to avoid the fact that if we were honest, general relativity has been catastrophically falsified so many times nobody can count them anymore. Uh, there are at least a baker's dozen of still viable alternatives that don't get taught, don't get mentioned. And even Whitehead's alternative from principle of relativity, which has been quote unquote falsified. Well, imagine if Whitehead's theory in principle of relativity, you were allowed to add as many free parameters as you needed to make it work. And, you'd, and your entire career was devoted into just adding enough parameters to make it work. I'll bet it would still be viable too. Is it you guys who say in quantum of explanation that it's really Whitehead invented a whole new family of approaches to general relativity that yes. could be adjusted? Yeah, actually, yeah. actually, I yeah, and I'll I'll go ahead and take credit for that because I talked about that in the measurement problem. Hmm. And as near as I can tell, I'm the first one that noticed it. I mean, I, I it sounds like I'm blowing my horn, and I suppose I am a little bit, but. I think it's true. I think I was the first one to notice that he did not invent an alternative theory of relativity. He invented a family. And that's right there. And I give the page numbers right there around page 80, right at the end of part one. And he shows how these tensors that he's putting out there can be parameterized to form a whole family of alternatives. He's just choosing this one and he's using Euclidean geometry purely for the sake of simplicity. Right. Yeah. And... And then the people, the physicists who dealt with it never read the, the, the first part on the philosophy of it. They only read the last part. And then, I mean, John Singh, the physicist, explicitly says that one can just take this book, rip off all those pages and throw them away and just deal with the part that deals with physical theory. No, you can't. Not without fundamentally misrepresenting what's happening. I mean, it's a problem in physical cosmology generally. Um, that theory will always be overdetermined by the, the available observations, right? Uh, so there are always going to be multiple theories. Actually, I, I believe the term is is actually underdetermined. Yeah, you're right, underdetermined by by the observations. So you, this is true within Whitehead's approach to this that we, if we don't get the philosophical uh, foundations uh, in place first in the philosophy of nature, the choice among possible theories purely as predictive models or post-dictive models, whichever way you want to look at it, is is kind of arbitrary. There's many, many theories that, that would work. 
The trouble is now is that the gatekeepers refuse to acknowledge this fact. Um, yeah. Brian Green, who is who's very cheerful about it, but he's still dogmatic. The string uh, theory is a Carroll. great example. Yeah, Sean Sean uh, Sean Carroll. He's dogmatic. He's kind in of many worlds in yeah. between. And then and then uh, Stephen Hawking, who is dogmatic and downright petulant, <laughs> was because he's now dead. But I mean Hawking, I I don't I don't have the hero worship for Hawking that many people do. I mean, when you read many of his books, he's downright petulant, and he doesn't know the history of his own topic. He denounces philosophers for still being concerned about quantum mechanics. All those problems have been solved. Well, they haven't. The physicists themselves are still concerned about the fact that quantum mechanics, you, you have the, as you mentioned. Oops. I guess he got excited. Or maybe, <laughs> the, cat, maybe the cat hung up on <laughs> Well, um, oh, oh, yeah, there I am. Yeah. Still here, great. But, yeah, I, the ghost of Hawking came up and yeah, it's not Hawking's not happy. <laughs> so I mean, they don't allow for the fact that there are that there even exist alternatives, much less that those alternatives are viable, and that is a real problem in terms of science. Yeah. That is, I mean, that, that that's no longer science. That's ex cathedra uh, pontification. So. I think earlier you said um, Whitehead's primarily a philosophical cosmologist. I think that's that's right. Um, but he's also interested in physical cosmology. But but theological cosmology is not something he's um, totally doing without either. Even in part four, actually, right at the very beginning of part four. Uh, let me just read these two sentences, I think. And I'm curious what you make of them. Um, he says the quantum, he's talking about the difference between coordinate and genetic analysis or, right. or division. The quantum is that standpoint in the extensive continuum, which is consonant with the subjective aim in its original derivation from God. Here, God is that actuality in the world in virtue of which there is physical law. And he's, you know, he's talking about, you would prefer the term RK for this. I, I would, yeah, I, I would. I mean, it's not, it's not the direction he went. I think it adds to a lot of confusion, but yeah, the God at this point, I mean, it's only in part five that he gets into the more, um, consequent nature. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was trying to, a more open-ended, a less, uh, more poetic rendering poetic. Thank you. That's, that's a good term. A more, more poetic rendering of the idea of, of God. Thank you, Matt. That was, I mean, I, I wanted to ask this question too, and maybe I can just kind of phrase it in my own way and, um, maybe we'll both get what we want from it, but, Certainly, I can understand how you need some sort of meta actual entity, whatever, to stabilize the whole system. Is there more? Like, what? Why did Whitehead choose this word, God? Because it's being that it's so, it's so loaded. Part of it, I think, for someone who's doing metaphysics and who's doing metaphysics from an old school, a Victorian old school, I don't think it's as loaded as it has long since come to be. But the uh, the reading that, that Matt gave, and I've already forgotten the exact terms, but as the source of law, I mean, yeah, it, there has to be some basis for the rational structure of, of the universe. And you want to argue against that? How do you plan on arguing against that? The very act of argument presupposes the rational structure of the universe. Yeah. I mean, and this so, is his point in science in the modern world, just as a historical argument that yeah. European science comes straight out of medieval theology. This search for the rational basis, the, the rational order basis of the universe, of the universe, and um, 
that's why so many atheists, so many, well, I sometimes refer to them as ouchy atheists because they've been, they've been hurt by the church. And I mean, I was out I was one myself and I just got old enough that I outgrew it. But there's so many atheists that get, that stop on that term. And that's the unfortunate part. It's, it, it was so much more loaded now. It was getting loaded in 1929 when he's writing, but he's, he's a Victorian. I mean, Russell is an Edwardian, but, but Whitehead is a Victorian. He's coming up in the late 19th century. He's at, he's at, at Cambridge in the 1870s, for crying out loud. I mean, God talk is just not a bad thing. And it's the word that everybody uses. And look at the, Whitehead's terminology, uh, pre, prehension, concretion. These are not words that he made up. They were just, they're just out of, they were just English terms that are out of use. Adam has come into standard English usage by this time, although it's comparatively new within English, but it's established English usage by the middle late uh, 19th century. And so he can talk about reality being atomic, but when he says that, he means it in the original sense of the Greeks, that the original sense that was adopted as uncut, atomos, as an undivided whole. He doesn't mean a microparticle at all. But by 1929, he's still using atom in that old way, and it, it is irrevocably now means a solid microscopic ball of stuff. Yeah, and that really threw me my first my first pass through process in reality in the introduction where he says, I'm paraphrasing the yeah. you know fundamental reality is atomism. I was like, what? <laughs> okay. I, it, the first time I'm reading that, uh, the first three or four times I'm reading that, it knocked me for a loop as well. And I find I just kept going back through this stuff and what has to be the case in order for this to make sense. You know, the world is infinitely divisible, but undivided. Mm -hmm. And it's only after I actually learned a little bit of Greek that I finally said, ah, Tomos, not cut. Oh, that's what he means. I mean, that literally, I mean, atomos literally means uncut in Greek. Yeah. I'm, I'm and, cheating here and have, I have process and reality up on my screen. <laughs> oh, that's, I'm not that's just funny. quoting, I'm not quoting from memory, but, uh, you know, to, to really grok what he means by atomic in this sense of uncut, um, page 286, he says the atomic actual entities individually express the genetic unity of the universe. The world expands through recurrent unifications of itself, each by the addition of itself, automatically recreating the multiplicity anew. The many become one and increase by one. Yeah, exactly. to kind of back up and return to something that Matt, I think was, hey, Cameron, you have a lovely singing voice, but can you keep it down for a second? <laughs> do, you, do you hear what he's singing, by the way? Could not. No. I could not. Wait, wait. Cameron, actually, on second thought, can we hear that song you were just singing? All right, whatever. Camera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's, he's camera shy. He not was, anymore. For Halloween, he was um, Rick Astley, and... Um, do you know the guy who sings never gonna give you up uh, never gonna let you <laughs> so you know we went around the neighborhood trick-or-treating and he rickrolled all the neighbors <laughs> and insisted on singing the entire song at every house <laughs> oh, no some people were really amused some people were just like 
Next. Wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's great. Uh, yeah, but something that I think Matt was trying to get at earlier, and I, I could be taking well, this in a different direction than he intended it, but emphasizing the more genetic accounts and uh, intuition and these kinds of things. One of the things that I think I was taking away from your writing, I think you were saying something about how we we can't know anything of the particular experiences of, you know, whatever, an electron or a galaxy. Um, and I, I sort of, I was like, oh, is this like a crypto Kantianism is slipping in here? Because uh, there's almost like it, upon that view, there's like a prohibition against making any kind of claims based on any kind of anthropomorphism. Would you say that's fair or do, did I get that right? Or? Well, I would certainly encourage being cautious about anthropomorphism, but in terms of knowing the, and I have to, one has to understand that speaking of an electron's experience, the word experience is being used in a technical sense and not in the common sense that we talk about. Oh, I had this wonderful experience at the party. Mm -hmm. The electron's experience is going to be of the entire electromagnetic field. And Thomas Nagel said, what it's like to be a bat. He says, no, you can't. Well, but you can get close. And that's where that coordinate analysis is going to start coming in. I mean, the world is infinitely divisible but undivided, but we can go out there and make hypothetical divisions, perform our coordinate analyses, narrowing things down. This is what the, uh, the method of extensive abstraction that he talks about in the triptych. We can get closer and closer and closer and, get, and discern a smaller and smaller collection of relevant characteristics and make uh, effective scientific judgments, for example, from that narrowed uh, perspective from the, about those characteristics and learn something about the electromagnetic field, we can say in this, this individual electron. But we can get closer and closer and very effective. And our science these days is pretty effective, especially when we're talking about uh, things just right here in front of us. In, a, in the case of White, the radical empiricism part is, is the uh, relational realism. This was what James introduced when he introduced radical realism is that the but, the and, the or are real relations that we literally feel that are direct and immediate parts of our experience. And so the radical empiricist says that these things are real. That's another reason why you need to have some, a little bit of background in something like abstract algebra to get a really good, deep experience of relations and relational re realism. And so for him, relations are real things. And it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to experience it, to get inside what to think. I mean, uh, Isabel Stenger's book, Thinking with Whitehead, I'm saying you have to take a little, a few extra steps and think like Whitehead to really get into that part of his thought, to really understand what he's talking about when he's, when he's talking about relations and relational realism. Just did a uh, talk few weeks ago um, at the American Institute of Philosophical and Cultural Thought. Just uh, watched AIP it earlier today, actually. Yeah, AIP it was a great talk. AIPCT, Space Hearst team at YouTube should bring it up. One of the things is that you have to get inside Whitehead's head the same way you have to get inside the head of, say, Plato or Aristotle. Example, and I used it there. I use it all the time. If someone came to us and said, I am a world-class scholar in uh, Plato and Aristotle, but I never bothered to learn any of that stupid Greek language stuff. You don't need that. I mean, people would legitimately dismiss such an individual out of hand because you really do need to learn some Greek 
in order to appreciate what Aristotle and Plato are saying. To understand that the word that is translated as happiness now, eudaimonia, that just doesn't fit. Uh, eudaimonia translates more or less directly as healthy spirit, and it makes sense in the Greek context about what human flourishing might be, but think we, we say happiness, we think, we think pleasure, which is hedonia in Greek, and definitely not what Aristotle is talking about. And so you can, you can multiply these examples. Well, the same thing when thinking with and thinking like Whitehead. Some minimal facility, some minimal background in this kind of thinking, like, and I, you know, abstract algebra, I think is the best for this, really is necessary to, to get into that mindset, to kind of see how that works, see how a mathematician takes a problem, isolates it, does the coordinate analysis, comes up with a quantum of explanation, and then tackles the problem he's tackling with that quantum of explanation now in hand. When we say that he does this in all of his books, that's what we're talking about, that approach that narrows the focus, determines the quantum of explanation, and then builds from that. And seeing it, quote unquote, live, the, the way mathematicians actually do it, is arguably, uh, and I do argue that, is arguably a, uh, an essential component in learning Whitehead scholarship. Uh, are you familiar, you're familiar with James Bradley's work? I can't remember if you guys cited um, him. Not, not really, no. Not really. I mean, he really emphasizes the extent to which it's a comment Whitehead makes very early in process and reality about the nature of the scheme he's uh, constructed, that it's a matrix from which true propositions applicable to particular circumstances can be derived. Derived, right. right. Uh, and so his categories are a bit like variables, right? You can plug in different values uh, to see if they're consistent and coherent across various domains of experience. Right. And so, I, I mean, I hear I, what you're saying. This is, this is Bradley's point as well, um, that we need to understand Whitehead as an algebraist. And as a non-mathematician, this is, this is an, a complete novice in math. This has been a steep learning curve for me. Um, but I appreciate, I think you said in your talk that you're referencing at the American Institute that uh, learning math is best done by first learning the history of math. Learning the history is the best, and Whitehead agrees on this point. In one of the essays in uh, Aims of Education, I believe that the best approach for the non-mathematician is through the history. I, I have a list actually on my computer that I can share with pretty much anyone. Oh, actually, uh, I think I shared it on my, I have a blog and I shared it there. What's your blog, Gary? I wasn't aware of that. The Quantum of Explanation. It's GaryHerstein.com. Nice. And if you go there, I think the latest one I pinned the talk there, I find... I, yes. I I Thank you, Matt. I don't, I don't. I don't like seeing myself videos of myself. I don't like hearing recordings of myself. But I finally just bit, bit the root and, and posted it there. And I added an extended version of of the reading list that I handed out at that talk at AIPCT. I don't know that I'll be reading the abstract algebra books that you uh, mentioned, but I have looked at Morris Klein's book, uh, Mathematical Thought from Ancient to Modern Times. Very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of Klein does history. Uh, uh, Edith uh, Kramer's history is my favorite. It's just that it's hard to come by and incredibly expensive. So yeah, I mean, a, a group of stuff there. Um, this is all good. I, I This is all intellectual history and discourse that I'm not that familiar with. I'm just kind of dipping my, my toe into the intramural Whiteheadian disputes, and it's a lot of fun. And to that point, I think we've touched on enough stuff that we could 
characterize as scholarship. So let's get a little spicy for a second. Okay. Matt posted this recent piece that you, or blog post, I suppose, that you wrote, happy, fluffy, touchy-feely God talk. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Okay. Um, I am really annoyed with people that in the process theology side of things. Um, there and elsewhere, I try to avoid naming names. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been asked to ask you to name names, but I, I won't. <laughs> I'm going to politely decline uh, because I don't think I don't think anyone who's even remotely familiar with the area or the topic could be confused about who I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you can put it in the chat. Put it in the chat. <laughs> people, you know, individually, people are, are lovely people. All of them. I've met sure. a number of them. Had great conversations with them, and some of the most famous names. Are in, in many respects the people I'm least inclined to speak about because uh, they actually do go back and look at things like uh, part four, writing an article about strains and that sort of stuff, which is fairly unusual within the theological. Right. So we can cross off Griffin and Cobb at least. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, there is just a generic trend. Well, an, an illustration of this trend, and it was actually due to a, a a comment of Matt's in that blog. I mean, I the example I gave was of a vine that grows around a tree, but grows so tightly that it girdles the tree and will actually kill it. This is a known phenomenon. Uh, I was friends with people who were tree keepers up in Chicago for a while, and one of the things they'd have to be careful about with the bigger trees going around and cutting the vines that started to grow on them. Well, Matt's example was why not use the, the panda, the great, the quaking aspen growth in northeastern uh, Utah which is a favorite among the uh, process theology folks. And I started to say why, and I kind of talked myself into a realization that that actually is a good example of the problem. Pando, is, you might know, is this huge growth of a quake, quaking aspen. It's basically one tree or a single genetic tree that has sprouted up multiple trunks over some, I don't know, thousands of acres. Is it the largest living organism on earth or something like that? the largest single living organism on earth as far as uh, genetic tests show that it's monoclonal organism, certainly, that the genetics of each and every tree are the same. It's an interesting growth, certainly it's an interesting object, but here's the thing. There are no other trees in that spot. They're praising it as this grand example of life and growth and theology and God stuff. And that's just, there are no other trees in that, in, within that growth because that quaking aspen is an aggressive living organism that's going to choke the life out of any other tree that tries to take root inside its patch. He's a colonialist. <laughs> You'll probably go there. but And the other part, of course, is that it's all being, being monoclonal. It's also a monoculture, which means that one opportunistic virus comes along, properly tuned, and the entire thing is killed in very short order. I think just to, to say where I was coming from with that particular analogy was more to say that, you know, Whitehead is the genetic code, Whitehead's philosophy, and that there are many different uh, trees sharing that Whiteheadian uh, genome that, that are cropping up. Um, I think for what, some 50 some odd years, the Claremont School of Theology was dominant in Whitehead studies in the US, yeah. at least for sure. But I guess from for me, coming into Whitehead studies as a graduate student, it didn't seem to be the case. Oh. I did read a little bit of Griffin, but as a grad student, I hadn't read Cobb. I hadn't read Hartshorn. I was just 
reading Whitehead and more contemporary interpreters. Um, so yeah. I had a different experience. A um, friend of mine commented a couple months ago, I haven't looked at it for a long time, but the last time he, he went through process studies, it was all process theology. The most recent meeting in Austria, the question came up, how many purely process philosophy tracks were there? And people we talked to couldn't name any. And there was, and there was more than a few couple that went there. Yeah. What would you say that folks who have come to understand Whitehead's thought, whether directly or indirectly, through the theological process, theological framework that you talk about, what do they miss about Whitehead? And, and I guess the other side of that is, what is the substance of your complaint? Well, they miss the thinking for, uh, <laughs> for ouch. Um, I mean, it was not just the style, but most of the substance of it. The, uh, I mean, he's a rigorous thinker. You mentioned the uh, categorical scheme. Uh, one of the things I thought about then, but almost lost track of, was that Whitehead's approach to such things, and this shows up in, in his two little books on the axioms of geometry from 1906 and 1907. Uh, there are two different approaches to that axiomatic approach. You can give the logically minimal number, or you can give, be more loose with the axioms for more teachable moments that are clearer in terms, in terms of education. One is pedagogical, one is purely logical. And his approach tends to be towards the pedagogical. His axiom book gives extra axioms. He doesn't give the logical minimum, but rather gives a list of axioms that, are, that make the subject clearer. And I believe that's kind of his approach with the categorical scheme. He's not trying to give a minimum here, rather trying to give enough to cover all the bases and to provide an entry point for people to see how to apply all this stuff. But the application is not haphazard. It is still rigorous. It is still a mathematician talking to us here. And if you lose that, you lose some of the essential flavor. I mean, white is more of a cut diamond, I would say, than a um, soft and fuzzy. Would it be fair to say that the issue you take has more to do with method than with anything in particular that the process theologians are doing well, as, as such? Well, losing the method, brings a focus on content mm -hmm. that tends to overwhelm the rest of the content. And so um, it's more than just part five. Oh, you just muted yourself or your cat did. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, was, that, was, that was the cat. Jazzy slapped the keyboard. Nice. <laughs> so it's not just the, um, the, the, the co-traveler language in those couple sentences in part five. There is also this hard-nosed, uh, empirically-minded, rationalist scientist. It's important not just to feel good, but to actually have a workable system of inquiry that gives you focus, that laser-focused eye into the nature of the real. For example, I would like to, and there might be some, I mean, I've clearly not read all of it out there, but I'd like to see some of the process theologians deal seriously with tragedy. Get down dirty, get muddy and bloody with tragedy. Do you know Catherine Keller's work? Um, not as well Face, as I should. No. This is one Face of the Deep. Uh, she's got other books. Uh, she's definitely down and dirty in in, in the tragic dimension of. I mean, I'm not saying they're not coexistence. We have to take control, and people don't get to the point where they're rolling up their sleeves, getting prepared to do real hard work. As opposed well, don't, to, don't, I want to don't don't give up on process studies yet. 
I was just looking at some of the lists of articles in the last couple of journals uh, issues, and uh, th- that's the last one that just came out. There's one article on theology, and it's a review of a book. This happens to be a special issue on um, the Harvard Lecture Notes, the second volume, so maybe not the best example. But you know, looking back over the last couple of years, yeah, there's some theology, but it's not the majority, I would say, of the articles. I guess I, I get that you don't want to name names, but it's hard it's hard for me to to understand the touchy feely aspect because I haven't met anyone interested in Whitehead that doesn't like to think. I mean, nobody's gonna read Whitehead for a second that isn't willing to engage with consistent, coherent logic and well try to I, understand math and, and physics and, and and all of this, right? So he's not exactly the most appetizing mystical theologian for people who are wanting to search for that. Well, I haven't met anyone who's starving to death, but that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of people doing so. Mm. It's making an anecdotal uh, statement about personal experience. I'm doing the same thing, of course, by not Mm. naming names. But so there's a certain uh, soft and fuzzy to that argument as well. Tell me if I'm close or off base here. Would you say that what you take issue with perhaps is more a phenomenon that has to do with public discourse in the sense of online public discourse, right? Not talking about these percentage of scholarly articles that are published that have nothing to do with theology. Well, certainly the online discourse that I've seen is overwhelmingly the happy, fluffy stuff. Mm-hmm. I've also, however, encountered a number of scientific works that mention Whitehead and then explicitly reject him because of the G word. Uh, right. Tim Eastman's recent book, uh, in which he draws extensively on Whitehead, but then very carefully steps away from anything having to do with the G word. And part of the problem is a failure to recognize what the G word does in Whitehead's thought. I do agree with you that the way that Whitehead's God is talked about does dissuade many uh, more agnostic or atheist scientific thinkers in particular and philosophers from engaging with his work because they get that impression that this is someone who was doing motivated reasoning. I mean, even his friend Russell made this claim, which did such damage to Whitehead's reputation by saying that his later philosophy was just an attempt to make amends for his the loss of his son, that he was seeking some meaning that would atone for this loss or whatever. And it's such a it's such a misleading thing for Russell to say. He knows better. Yeah, a cheap shot, yeah. Uh, so I agree with you there, and that's unfortunate. I encounter that frequently when I'm talking to you know, scientists, um, trying to clue them into some of Whitehead's conceptual innovations. They're turned off by the theology, and they're turned off by panpsychism it's not clear that that's the right word to use to refer to whitehead because as you said earlier experience has a very technical meaning in his philosophy but uh and psychism means they mean consciousness by psychism which he does not right. no certainly not um i think he's a species of, of panpsychist but you have to really get into the details to understand that and um unfortunately because of that association, let's say, with panpsychism and because of the the theology, a lot of really brilliant physicists and biologists just won't even listen to what I want to say about Whitehead's work. And that's a problem. I think it's it's a reflection of a certain 
cultural issue as well, mm-hmm. but uh, that's not Whitehead's fault, but it's, it's an obstacle for sure. We talked about this earlier about the, um, how loaded the, ter- the God term is. And even in 1929, it was you know, a little loaded by then, but if you look back to his formative years, uh, it's just how people discussed this global field of rational out- rationality and the font of creativity. I mean, that's one of the ways that I talk about this RK that Whitehead yeah. calls God. I guess this is for both of you. Do you think that anything would be lost if we were to discard, or not discard, simply replace the word God with whatever? RK, I, yeah. I mean, is, is that... Would, that, would you be that's, in favor of that? I would. Um, I Up until part five, I mean, you might have to leave God in part five. Agreed, yeah. But part four, because the thing about the Greek, it's a Greek word, and it means, it has multiple meanings. It can mean, mean beginning, it can mean foundation, it can mean kind of ruling force. But the opening to uh, First John, uh, the gospel of First John in Greek is anarche and hologos, which is translated as in the beginning was the word. And that goes back to learning the language. You know anything about the Greek language? Beginning is not false translation, but it's not even remotely adequate to the meaning of RK or of Logos. And so I would uh, favor changing everything, certainly everything in part four and earlier. You couldn't uh, change it in religion and the making or in uh, adventures and ideas and possibly not in part five. What about you, Matt? Uh, I'm of two minds about this. I think you know, Whitehead himself in Adventures of Ideas, he, he uses this these this language of like, uh, instead of the primordial nature, he'll talk about the uh, initial eros. And instead of the consequent nature, he'll talk about the final beauty. Uh, and I think that avoids the G word. And I like RK for the primordial nature, but I, I'm trying to think of a, another word, a Greek term for the consequent nature, because that's a very important aspect of his philosophy too. And I think it is the more religious aspect. Yeah, um, It does have some cosmological function also, but it's more like him trying to account for our longing for the past to not evaporate. Right. And, yeah. And yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good point because I, in my, one of the things I, I talked about in the internet encyclopedia of philosophy, white, it is driven by what might be called two broadly construed problems one of which, for lack of better words, is called the problem of space, and the other uh, called the problem of the accretion of value. What Matt just said about losing the past ties in directly with that. And I want to say that, I mean, for all that I snark at the process theology people, I don't want to see them go away. I don't want them to be shut down. I don't want them to be silenced. I want people to be aware that they are not the only game in town which is within my circles that I float in, which are, again, anecdotal uh, information, but enough concern with some of the things that I have read that it it is a perceivable problem, maybe not as big a problem as I make it out to be on my blog posts, but they're only blog posts. Those aren't peer-reviewed journal articles. I mean, mean, there are limits to how far I'm going to defend anything I say on the blog. Mm -hmm. After that, I'm just going to... (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's a, the the joy of blogging um, yeah. but just the last thing i want to say on this is that i i agree that the god language is problematic and can be changed but i also think process theology and in particular i mean it's Catherine keller who's my my home base here and her work this book face of the deep that i showed you earlier is a long exegesis of the first couple of verses of genesis 
and reading it from a process point of view, going against this creatio ex nihilo idea and, and imagining God in more relational terms and connecting with the biblical tradition in a way that I think is extremely generative. And I mean, it's a long shot, but I would hope that if there's any hope for this world, Christianity will, will be eventually willing to look at this approach and that it can move people and and shift the whole role that religion plays in contemporary life. One of the things I like best about process theology is precisely that it is so, I mean, even if they don't say it in so many words, it is so antithetical to the Christian dominionist fundamentalism that has taken over the term Christianity. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't even, I mean, these people will tell you, you can't even be a Christian unless you believe like we do. And that's, that's not absurd. That's obscene. Right. Whereas the process people are saying, this is a view of Christianity that recovers the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Hence the surging popularity of process theology, perhaps. So we've been talking for a while and I know we were only supposed to go to 730, but we hit our stride late. So I apologize about that. Um, no, this was fun. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for, for yeah, having us, Matt. I, I forget you're an hour different from me. I kept looking up my clock. We got 45 minutes to go. Oh, yeah. Well, plus I knew I knew we were done when you referenced the Gospel of John. <laughs> it's usually a, a mic drop moment or a, or a taboo. All right. Well, uh, Gary, any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Um, uh, you want to tell us anything more about the project you're working on? how people can get well, in touch with you, et cetera? Well, uh, getting in touch with me, there's, again, there's always the blog, uh, and that's uh, GaryHerstein, one word, dot com. Right now, uh, we talked a little bit in Quantum about this book we were visualizing, The Continuum of Possibility, and we are just really now, just now sitting down as getting started. I mean, I just now moved back to a place local enough that we could both kind of sit down and really put our heads back together again. So, I mean, it was, some of it was physical separation. Some of it was just too many different other projects going on. I mean, sure. uh, the situation in, in Carbondale from uh, 2011 through just about 2019 was uh, pretty chaotic at, at the university. Well, I'm glad things are, you know, maybe stabilizing a little bit and that good things are, are in the works. Yeah, excited to read that next book. Expect a few years. I mean, we worked on. I'm patient. We worked on Quantum for oh, six years before it was published, and I think we had a better idea of what we were doing there than we do now. Well, looking forward to that. I have to go and feed my son, um, so uh, I'm going to go do that. But it was great to see you guys, and I'll see you soon. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Take care. Great Bye. to talk to you both. All right. Bye. Bye now. Thanks again to Matt and Gary. Thank you, of course, for making it to the end. Next up, we'll be speaking to Tom Ord about his most recent book, The Death of Omnipotence and Birth of Amipotence. It doesn't really roll off the tongue very well, but I think it's an improvement on omnipotence. And so we'll talk to him about that. I also found audio of an interview with John Gill that was never published. I'll push that out at some point too. And last thing is, we're partnering with Kazi Adi Shakti, the Center for Process Studies, and the Cobb Institute. And we're going to be offering a reading group, uh, or what they're calling a learning circle, 
where over the course of several months, we'll be taking a close look at Gilles Deleuze's uh, difference in repetition. So Justin, Matt Baller, Kazi, and I will facilitate all of that, and we'll be making an announcement about that uh, soon, I hope. Just figured I'd mention it now in case anyone's interested, so more details to come, um, and that's all I've got. See you next time.